Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to help support Songcraft while accessing bonus content and rewards, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You can also keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com, where you can check out our episode archive and sign up for our email list. You're listening to Knock on Wood, a number one pop hit recorded by Amy Stewart that was a cover of the number one R&B hit written and originally recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, soul pioneer Eddie Floyd. The Stax Records legend who wrote classics such as 6345789, and a half, Raise Your Hand, Big Bird, I've Never Found a Girl, and California Girl will join us in a few moments to talk about his remarkable career, his surprising hand in Leonard Skinner's success, and stories from his new autobiography, Knock, Knock, Knock on Wood, My Life and Soul. Part 1. Well, Scott, we start another episode today with some sad news, um, and this time it's not uh, about specifically a guest of our show, but about a family member of a guest of our show. Um, Justin Towns Earl, uh, the son of Steve Earl, passed away recently, uh, unexpectedly, at the age of 38. Yeah, very sad news, and, and certainly a talented and prolific songwriter in his own right. Um, I was very sorry to, to see that news and obviously um a young man you know there was a time in my life when i would have not have referred to a 38 year old as a young man but man it sure seems uh yeah. sure seems like a young young age to to lose someone um and had uh, certainly a lot of promise and a lot of great songs uh left to be written and and recorded so um huge loss for yeah. the songwriting world um yeah I mean, he had definitely carved out his own path, um, you know, outside of that of his famous father. Um, and you actually had a chance to meet him when he was I mean, just a kid, right? Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I was in, in college, and uh, we, we've talked about this before, we, we've had, you know, Steve Earle, as you mentioned, as a former Songcraft guest. But, man, when I was in college and I first started trying to write songs of my own, I was a huge fan of Steve Earle. Like, there was no artist, you know, on the face of the earth that I uh, was a bigger fan of. Yeah. And um, through a, a series of, of interesting events, um, that I won't go into. I actually had the opportunity, uh, to kind of sit at the feet of my hero, um, while he was recording an album called El Corazon. This would have been, I think around 1997. Mm. And, um, I had the opportunity, I was invited to go to the studio and kind of sit in while they recorded a song. And Steve knew that I was a big fan of his and, Afterwards, he's like, hey, look, we're here all week making this record, so come back whenever you want. And I said, well, don't tell me that or I'll, I, I will. He's like, no, man, seriously, like, come back. So I think I literally came every day wow. uh, for like a week, which is insane, you know, at that age to have like suddenly unlimited access to your hero to watch them creating mm -hmm. their next album, you know. But one of the things that stuck with me 
was one day there was just some kind of downtime and I think somebody had gone out to get some food or something and it was just kind of like a lull in the activity and Steve and I were sitting in the control room. I don't think anybody else was in there. Um, and he was just kind of stretched out on the couch, like chilling between, you know, the, the recording sessions and I'm sitting there in a chair and Justin comes in, Steve's son, who was, I think about 15 years old at the time. And, uh, he played a demo. I think he had made a little recording demo with his friend on one of those like four track cassette, you know, recorders. Um, and he came in and he played, it was an original song that he had just written and he played it for his dad. And I, I think it was probably the first song that Justin had ever written. Um, it was certainly the first song that he'd ever played for Steve. Um, and it was, it was pretty good. I mean, the kid was 15, you know, it sounded like a a teenager, but it wasn't your run of the mill teenage song. You're like, wow, this guy's got promise, you know, it's good. And I remember he played it for Steve and, and Steve was kind of like, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's great son, you know? And, and then Justin left with, with his buddy that he'd come to, to play the demo, you know, for his dad. And I remember Steve sort of made a comment like, uh Oh, you know, he's got it in him. Like he, he's got the spark, you know, he, he recognized that Justin, uh, had, you know, talent. And, um, Steve was sort of shaking his head like, Ooh, it's going to be a rough road for that boy. If he's got the music Mm. in him, you know, because I I know the path that, that he's going to take. So it was interesting to watch, to watch Steve Earle, watch his son, who would become a well-known singer-songwriter, uh, play him his first song that he'd written. Um, and to see that Steve, even at that moment, recognized the like, oh yeah, this this kid, uh, he's got the promise. That's an incredible family moment to be a part of, you know. Yeah. Uh, for for you, especially with your with your hero, I, and I'm just thinking about that that opportunity to come into the studio. You know, he's like, come back whenever you want, and you're like, well, what else would I do today? that would feel better than going in to watch my idol make a record right and then to walk away and say hey i actually saw like a a pivotal family moment with him and his son sharing their art together geez yeah that's that's something you wouldn't have wanted to miss yeah it was an incredible moment so you know when when we uh had steve on the show um a while back uh i reminded him about that and it was fun to just you know reminisce with Steve about that, that moment. He probably had no memory of the fact that I was there. Um, but, uh, well, who does, you know, I mean, (laughs) you're a, you're a good guy, you know, I try to blend in with, I like having you around, but it's not like you make a huge difference. That Scott Bomar has (laughs) never been one for impressions. You know, the, the whole thing of like a moment you wouldn't have wanted to miss, um, I'll tell this briefly, but you know my story about going to see Paul McCartney at Dodger Stadium last summer, right? Right. And I've seen Paul McCartney a number of times, and it's always just a, an incredible experience. I mean, he's one of the one of the greatest musicians this world has ever produced, and an incredible performer. Um, but having seen him a few times, I, I said, "Well, traffic's going to get pretty bad. Uh, we got to get from Dodger Stadium back down to Redondo Beach. I've got an early morning. Let's beat traffic." So I heard the strains of Hey Jude start, I think, you know, I said, hey, let's go. Let's go to the car and get back home. And I got home and opened up my phone just to see my news alerts. Ringo Starr joins Paul McCartney for rousing encore at Dodger Stadium, (laughs) which probably happened right about the time that we were hitting the 105 freeway. Oh, man. And uh, I don't think I'll ever leave a concert early again. 
No, you'll wait until they're sweeping up and all the lights are back on. Make yeah. sure yeah. that Ringo's not coming out. Completely disconnected story. I just needed to make <laughs> it about me for just a minute. Well, you know, that's it's all about making it about you, yeah. you know. That's uh <laughs> um but you know, one of the the, the check out this segue, Paul. You're gonna appreciate this. <laughs> one of the things about missed opportunities uh, is oh. you don't want them in your life. Right. Now let's say you've written a great song. Now what if the world never hears it because you just don't know how to get it down in a way that makes it presentable to play for other people? Is there anything that somebody could do about a situation like that? Well, I keep racking my brain to think of someone that I know that might have something to do with that, and I just keep coming back to one one name. It's Pearl Snap Studios, man. That's right. And Justin. Yeah. I, I think of him as a dream maker, a dream saver, a dream protector. <laughs> and if you right. have a dream, if you have a song in your heart, a dream in your head, uh, all you got to do is put it down in some kind of playable format. Your little voice memo will do just fine and send it over to Justin. And it will come back covered in fairy dust <laughs> and beautiful radio sheen. <laughs> that thing will come back with a presentable, pitchable, playable demo that you can be proud to show anybody. So if you've written a song, uh, maybe you've been working on writing some songs for a while and uh, you've stumbled on one, you go, you know, I think this one's actually pretty good. Maybe I should I should do something with this, but I don't have Pro Tools. I don't have the ability to really make something that sounds professional. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com. Connect with our friend Justin there. He will absolutely hook you up. It doesn't matter what genre of music you do. Even if you need a little help and, and you think, man, I don't really know what the arrangement should be or, or exactly what this should sound like, but I do have a melody and lyrics, Justin will help you bring that thing to life. He will help you put together a recording that you can be proud of um, and share with, with other people. And the best thing is, is when you do go to pearlsnapstudios.com, if you are a faithful songcraft listener, uh, you will be eligible for a discount if you're a first-time customer. And let's face it. We've been in this pandemic for going on six months now. If you haven't learned Pro Tools by now, you're not going to. That's a I good know point. you downloaded the software in March and you said, I'm going to be home a lot. I'm going to learn this in and out. But you haven't. Exactly. And that's why Paul is my co-host on Songcraft Spotlight <laughs> on Songwriters. If I haven't learned Pro Tools by now, I am not going to learn Pro Tools. Yeah, and I just keep coming over and messing with your settings to make sure it never works for you. <laughs> so I will always have a place here at Songcraft. You have to make yourself indispensable. That's an important lesson yep. in this business. Yep. Um, speaking of important lessons, if I may segue us yet again, um, I'm really stoked about this Eddie Floyd uh, interview today um, because we have had some great um, guests on the show before who have been part of the Stax Records history. Um, we've had William Bell on the show. We had David Porter of Hazen Porter on the show recently. Uh, we've had Steve Cropper on the show. Um, we're, we're still hoping for Booker T. We want to get Booker T. Jones on here for sure. Um, and now with Eddie, you know, we've got these guys who were all part of this incredible scene in the mid-1960s that was happening in Memphis, Tennessee at Stax Records. These guys were creating some of the most iconic pop and R&B records, you know, working with Otis Redding, you know, in the studio with Sam and Dave. I mean, yeah. you're talking about some of the just most incredible records that this country has probably ever produced. And we've had the opportunity to speak to these guys who were were recording this stuff and to talk to a guy like you know 
Eddie Floyd, who's a writer on 99 and a half, who's, you know, wrote and recorded Knock on Wood, which is such an iconic song. Hearing from these guys is, again, it's like when Steve Earle let me come to the studio. It's like, wow, we get to sit at the the feet of these masters and hear these stories. And they're actually going to let us in on the process of what was going on in those writer rooms and in the studio that uh, that that were the the foundation and the background to the stories of these songs that we all know so well. Yeah, I mean, for guys like you and me, man, who who just love this music so much uh, it, to, to hear these stories and have these conversations is just it's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just silly how cool it is. How do we know? get to do this? I want to just make a quick point before we move on to the serious part of our episode. Uh, you mentioned having Booker T as a guest, which would be an absolute dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling that I'll be kind of just surprised by hearing his voice uh, because I'm so accustomed to him being an organist. I feel like he speaks through that instrument. Right. And there's a part of me in my subconscious that feels like people who are famous instrumentalists can't talk. <laughs> like... <laughs> Kenny G. <laughs> like if Kenny G has a voice, that would surprise me. Yeah. Like remember when Daniel Day-Lewis played uh, Abraham Lincoln and the voice he chose was kind of like Tenny sort of reedy. Yeah. yeah. And you thought like Abraham Lincoln's voice would be like really like <laughs> deep and, you know, right. have all this gravitas. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like you assume, you know, certain things. So who Except knows? I just figured that we would ask Kenny G a question and he would just pick up his saxophone and answer <laughs> With that, <laughs> yeah, I'm like uh, Kenny. Where did you grow up? He's like, <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say that we'll probably not have Kenny G on the show, and we'll never, uh, we'll he wrote never those songs? answer that that question. He wrote those songs. Yeah, I know, I know, he did. Part two. Eddie Floyd first found success on the Billboard charts as a songwriter for Carla Thomas, Solomon Burke, and Wilson Pickett, who had hits with 6345789 and 99 and a half won't do. He went on to top the charts as both writer and artist, recording soul classics Knock on Wood, Raise Your Hand, Big Bird, I've Never Found a Girl, and California Girl. Other artists continued to hit the charts with his songs, including Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, William Bell, Rufus Thomas, Esther Phillips, and Amy Stewart, who reached number one on the pop charts with her disco version of Knock on Wood in 1979. From his early life as a doo-wop singer with the Falcons, to his successful career with Stax Records, to his stints as the lead singer of both the Blues Brothers Band and Bill Wyman's Rhythm Kings, Floyd has always considered himself, first and foremost, a songwriter. His catalog has been covered by Mavis Staples, Janis Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Eric Clapton, David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Tom Jones, Ike and Tina Turner, Albert King, Seal, James Taylor, Al Green, Etta James, Ella Fitzgerald, and others. He has been inducted into both the Alabama Music Hall of Fame and the Memphis Music Hall of Fame and has recently released his autobiography, Knock, Knock, Knock on Wood, My Life and Soul, written with Tony Fletcher. Eddie, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, good to speak with you. Now, you grew up in Alabama and you talk in your book about, you know, getting into some trouble as a kid and and going to live at a boy's home. Uh, where you ended up writing your very earliest songs. Uh, tell us a bit about that experience and, and how your understanding of music developed during your time there. Well, I would have to go back to Detroit in the early days 
that I used to see so many different jazz artists, you know, uh, performing. Right. That was my first encounter, you know, with music. And I would always sing the different songs, so I understood that part of, uh, you know, singing. Sure. And, of course, then I went back home to Alabama. I'm around 13 years old and a little restless. <laughs> Wanted to get back to Detroit, actually, you know. And uh, I got in trouble, went to the reform school, and uh, I met uh, a music instructor out there by the name of Arthur Wilmer, who put me into the uh, choir and also the band. And, uh, well, he he taught me theory, you know, as far as putting harmonies together, and uh, I had already knew how to lead you know do a lead singing and and that's where it all began yeah yeah it was a great thing that that took place i don't think i probably would would have been in music otherwise i i would imagine that being in a choir gave you an understanding of harmony and how the various parts of music kind of fit and work together yeah i used to uh sing all parts (laughs) i would sing you know bass second tenor, first tenor, even the, you know, we actually had girls and uh, did, you know, all of their parts too. So I learned how to sing all the parts and and I always wanted to do that. And it really worked out good because all the way through life, that's exactly the way I write songs when I do write. Um, well, you mentioned Detroit, and Detroit is where you put together the pioneering R&B group, the Falcons, um, and that led to your first real record as as both a singer and a songwriter uh, when the Mercury label released "Baby That's It." Um, talk about how that opportunity arose, and and tell us a little bit about writing that song and, and cutting that record. Well, my uncle, when I left the uh, reform school, he actually took me back to. Detroit, and uh, during that time, uh, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers was having in the platters, and I was telling my uncle that I thought I wanted to, you know, form a group, and uh, he was in real estate, and, well, he actually sold his real estate office and turned it into music, and uh, he he backed me up, and uh, I formed the group the Falcons, and so my uncle, he, you know, he didn't really know anything about, our, you know, productions or anything like that, but he was willing to uh, promote us, and we recorded that first song, Baby That's It, and uh, this was with an interracial group, Bob and Tom, Honor Robertson and Willie Schofield Bass and myself, three black, two white. My uncle took us to Chicago to audition. And uh, when we went to Chicago, we had to wear our suits. <laughs> we were kind of like, we were a little ashamed to actually be walking in the streets. Here come five guys in the street, and, and they all dressed alike. So we went into this <laughs> office of uh, Mercury, and the uh, secretary saw us and said we wanted to audition. And I guess that's probably the reason they listened to us 
and uh, my uncle spoke with them. And next thing we know, we got our first recording. And uh, this is 1956. Not only is that a song you wrote, but I understand that Willie Dixon, the man who set the template for modern blues songwriting and became a legend at Chess Records in Chicago, that he actually produced that first Mercury session for you and the Falcons. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes. All the musicians up there in Chicago during that time were basically blues uh, musicians, but I guess they knew, you know, the style of doo-wop music, as we called it, back during that time also, Willie Dixon. And later later through the years, I really realized who Willie Dixon really was. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, man, the, wow. So, you know, all the way through life, I've, I've done some shows with him, like, many years later, that I realized, you know, who, who he was and so many other uh, blues artists that, you know, played with him. Yeah. So it was quite an honor. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Falcons would go on to R&B success with songs like You're So Fine, When Joe Stubbs was in the group, and I Found a Love after Joe was replaced by Wilson Pickett. Um, in 1963, however, you, you parted ways and began building a solo career. Um, and one of those early efforts was Set My Soul on Fire, which was recorded with yet another music legend. Uh, what can you tell us about that one? That was in Washington, D.C., after the Falcons, you know, we used to go and play at the Howard Theater. So I love Washington. And I went back to Washington and stayed, and I knew Bo Diddley. Wow. And Chester uh, Simmons, who, who sung with the Moon Glows. And, and that's how I got to go down to Bo Diddley's studio and uh, recorded that particular song. So Bo Diddley. He played, you know, he played guitar behind me, and I sent it back to Detroit to my uncle, and he released it on Lupine. Now that was uh, that was an original song as well that you had written, right? Yeah, oh yeah. You know when I first started writing, everybody could write a song, and I guess I listened to so many, uh, you know, different people singing that that I knew how to write. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't study that long on that, you know. Get you a little title, a story, and. Well, I don't know who dictated the uh, tempo of that, but in the later years, whenever I write a song, 
I automatically know what the tempo's going to be according to the title. Hmm, that I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll start I'll start singing it up tempo if it's one one title, or I might sing, sing it slow. So set my soul on fire, you know. It just it just happened that way, and Bo Dilly understood me right away. When you get a title, you kind of have an instinct that kicks in of you you know the groove based on the titles, what you're saying. Oh, yeah. As it works out for me, that's exactly the way I, I write. Yeah. I can yeah. I can just I can just be walking along, all of a sudden something comes to me like a title, but actually almost the whole song now comes to me, although I had musicians that, you know, would come and play behind things but but through the years I can hear a bass automatically just just right off hmm. I can hear the tempo <laughs> and then I, and then I start becoming the band myself you know <laughs> right <laughs> right that's great well, in 1965, you appeared on the Billboard charts as a songwriter for the first time when Carla Thomas's recording of Stop, Look What You're Doing became a top 30 R&B hit and also appeared on the pop chart. Tell us how that all came together. Well, in Washington, D.C., uh, after uh, doing Set My Soul on Fire, I met Al Bell. He was from Memphis, actually, uh, disc jockey. Uh, and uh, during that time, Carla was going to Howard university there and uh meeting l bell he knew that she was there and we kind of like got together right away as far as music now he's a dj but but he wanted to write music also so we would use the studio they go down in sundown right uh, and and uh we would use the equipment and he called Carla thomas in i had a guitar player named al mcleod who played with me on a few songs, and I brought him in, and that's how we came up with that. Stop, look what you're doing to me. Can't seem to dry, oh, I can't seem to dry my weeping. I can never find oh, another love. That's why you hear me say, Stop, look what you Shortly after that, Al Bell had come to me and said that he was getting ready to go back to Memphis and leave Washington, D.C., where he was going to this company, Stax Records, and which Carla Thomas recorded for. And uh, that was my introduction to go down with him because we had written those two songs. Hmm. hmm. Well, it wasn't long after your association with Stax began that you scored your first number one hit as a songwriter when your old Falcons bandmate Wilson Pickett took the song 6345789 to the top of the R&B chart and to number 13 on the pop chart as well. Um, talk about how that song was written. Well, that, that particular song during that time, you know, the uh, telephone numbers were Cherry Hill 45789 and, uh, I was talking with Steve Cropper, uh, guitar player, Booker T and the MGs, and uh, we were trying to come up with a song because he knew that 
my old buddy Wilson Pickett was getting ready to come down to Memphis. And I was telling Steve, I wonder, you know, what it would sound like if we was to write a music, a song of all numbers. And <laughs> there is another song, Beachwood for seven, eight, nine. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, from Old Town and I don't know, I came up with the, uh, I came up with the melody uh, of uh, six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. That's my number. And uh, we put we put it together and knew that that uh, Wilson was coming in, picked him up at the airport, and went to the studio. Started from scratch. Hmm. I sung it to him. Well, at the same session where Wilson Pickett cut six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, he also recorded ninety-nine and a half, which is credited to you, Wilson, and Steve Cropper. What can you tell us about how the three of you put together the final version that became the song we know today? Well, just like six, three, four, uh, we got we got together, but Pickett came up with the idea because that's an old gospel phrase that. And Wilson, you know, sung in gospel groups, 99 and a half, and we we just kind of like went along with it. But uh, Steve Crawford got the idea, you know, as far as the rhythm, play, playing the song. And they both was, we actually did it at the same time. Well, that was a productive day. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to your book, I was not aware that you wrote the song, I Got Everything I Need, which was the B-side of Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming. Um, And we live in a very different world today in terms of music distribution. But at that time, you know, physical sales were a primary source of a songwriter's income, which means that, you know, every time Isaac Hayes and David Porter got paid for a sale of Hold On, I'm Coming, you got paid for your song on the other side of the record, too. Um, And I would imagine... You know, with those picket hits and the Sam and Dave success, that your life was starting to change uh, in 1966. And you know, by that point, you'd been writing songs for years. Um, but was there any noticeable impact on your songwriting process once you started having that commercial success, started landing hits? It, it more or less stayed just the same from the beginning all the way up. That you know. We did it the very same way. Uh, we realized that we did have a couple of songs that were beginning to to be hits, and that that was great. But but we always tried to write every day. We never did never did stop writing, 
And uh, I was I I lived in Washington D.C. and I would come down every other month, you know. Yeah. And I and I would get with Steve, our Booker T. Actually, <laughs> that you know, and and write songs. Also, Al Bell. Al Bell. We still we still were writing together, although he was into promotion also with Stack. So it was a total family affair and very easy, man. <laughs> I mean. Every time you come up with a song uh, overnight, I mean, and then everybody would always meet at the studio early morning. And uh, if you had something, they were all willing to play. And we did just head arrangements. I mean, didn't write anything down as far as, you know, horn arrangements and stuff like that. The horn guys could come up with the with the idea of the horns based on the rhythm. And uh, I would sing all the melodies, even, you know, for anybody that I would write with, I'm the melody man. Yeah, I have to lead it. I have to lead it, you know. And, uh, and then and we sort of like follow, follow each other. It yeah. was uh, very unique down there. I mean, when the, we would do a song, Everybody would contribute to the song, so you can't say that, you know, I I gave an idea for the bass, guitar, drums, <laughs> horns, or, or anything. We all, Everybody put themselves into it, and, and we knew each other. We felt each other, too, so, so that was very easy to do. Yeah, yeah, a real kind of community spirit. It's really, really cool. Well, you began your life at Stax as a songwriter, but made your artist debut on the label when the song Things Get Better was released as a single in 1966. You had obviously been in the Falcons and had released a good half dozen singles or more for various labels as a solo artist. But tell us how you made that transition from writer to artist at Stax. Well, it was it was like Things Get Better was just a demo. Atlantic heard it and thought it was a record, so... That's the way my whole life has been. Anyway, all of them has been demos for what I'm concerned. And uh, somebody would hear it and say, that sounds like a record on Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm fine with me, so I got introduced that way. I don't. I was a songwriter, although I definitely wanted to do the same thing that Wilson Pickett did, you know, when he left the Falcons as a solo artist. I Definitely wanted to sing as a solo artist, but I didn't really go to Stax for that reason. Yeah, I actually went, you know, to uh, because I did those songs with Carla. But after that, everything I would record is it, it'll be like knock on wood when we got ready to uh, do that particular song, Steve and I. Well, we went into the studio and actually put it together. My thoughts were. Otis Redden right away because he was he was the man he was he was the guy that was happening he wasn't even thinking about competing <laughs> right right well things turned out differently uh, that that one wasn't cut by Otis um, but you know things get better eventually became a top forty hit in the UK but it 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 didn't make much noise when it was first released and that's when your second stack single. 
knock on wood, uh, established you as a, as a major star. Um, and in your, in your book, you talk about the night that song was written, which is such a, a great story. Can you tell us about that? Well, that particular night was in Memphis at a hotel named the Lorraine. And, uh, Steve and I would always, Steve would come over, you know, when I, when I came in town and we would sit up each night and try to come up with ideas that particular night, storming, raining outside, lightning, the whole bit. And we were trying to come up with, with a song. And first, we had an idea to knock on wood, but being superstitious, and Cropper was thinking about the uh, rabbit foots and stepping over cracks, <laughs> the old superstitious sure. lyrics that, that people use. Yeah. And I told him... Well, the thunder and lightning was happening, and I told him, I said, you know, when I was a kid, me and my brother, we'd hide up under this big tall bed that my mom had, and we'd be up under the bed with the thunder and lightning, we'd be frightening Crawfordus, where he'll bounce off, you know, if you tell him something, then then he kicks it right up. That's it, it's like thunder, lightning. The way she loved me is frightening. I better knock on wood. But now when we get to the studio the next day, that song is, I, I still try to imagine singing that without that break. Right. I mean, so just, just figure that with the rhythm going, I better knock on wood. I mean, <laughs> I can't even imagine even now <laughs> how, that, how that really sounded. Well, Al Jackson, the drummer, he wanted to make a break in the song, and 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 he said, "Wait a minute!" Stopped everybody and said, "Let me make a break." You sang "I Better Not," and he said, "Bum bum 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 on wood." <laughs> okay, so that's 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 really how that took place. before everybody contributes something to that song yeah it, it would be like Isaac Hayes in the bridge part of it all of a sudden he sat down at the piano and started playing a little we didn't know what it was I mean da 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 yeah <laughs> it's kind of like kind of like it sounds like a, a soap opera or something everybody's <laughs> laughing but that's the fun we had while we were, you know, putting songs together. I truly believe 
it wouldn't have been a hit if Donald Duck Dunn hadn't played his part. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Such a great groove. Oh, man. <laughs> well, if you count the Sam and Dave B-side, Knock on Wood was the third number one record you were involved with as a songwriter in 1966. But then it reappeared as a number one pop hit by Amy Stewart in 1979. This is the area where we see your songs becoming not just hits, but perennial favorites. Another example is Raise Your Hand, your follow-up single to Knock on Wood. Uh, that one went on to be covered by Janis Joplin, Ike and Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, and others. What can you tell us about that song? Well, that particular song, when we went over in 1967 to do the uh, Stax tour, it was only then that I was aware, really aware of Raise Your Hand, you know, changing up. I'm getting ready to uh, do the show in London, and the Dishaki Emperor, Roscoe, he was American, but he was there in England as the MC. He announced me like not only the number one record in Great Britain, but the number two. <laughs> and and he was he was referring to raise your hand, and wow that that's when that all begins began with me. Wow. <laughs> is that is that when I sung knock on wood and I felt the same way doing raise your hand, you know, and I kind of tried to wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Everybody, here we go. You know, it's one thing to write songs, um, and w as a songwriter, you have a certain amount of control over the song, but then when you're the songwriter and the performer, y you have the opportunity to really sell these songs in a certain way, and, and a lot of times, you know, a great song is made that much greater by the performance, by the way the singer sells the song, and when you're the guy that wrote it, you know, that puts you in a unique position to be able to really get across what you had in mind as the writer. Right, I thought so, but, but, you know, as I saw Bruce Springsteen, his version of it, I said, well, I know this guy's never seen me before, <laughs> but I met, I met Bruce in, in Memphis, and uh, he, he wanted me to come to his show to do his show, and I did go, and I went on stage, but I sung both of the songs, and he didn't really sing them with me, yeah. but... After that, I saw this version was like so close to mine as far as performing. Right. You know, it was the way he performed that song, you know. And like I said, we were up in Norway when we did the 67 tour. Uh, we did it in London really good, but Norway was really the one. <laughs> that particular night, I guess, as I still, as I watch, as I watch it now, I said, you had... You had a lot of fun on stage, but you should have left at least 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I, th I thought I did it way too long, but every time I broke it down, I kept singing. <laughs> That's <laughs> the band, Yeah, they kept playing, and, and uh, so we stayed up-tempo all, you know, 
and and man, when I so when I see Bruce's version of it too, he's doing it the very same way. He dropped down on his knees and, and all the way up, you know. Right. Meeting him, like I said, back in back in Memphis, I didn't really know that he had did that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Otis Redding, of course, looms large in the Stax record story, and you had a, a top 30 hit on Otis with I Love You More Than Words Can Say in, in 1967, and, you know, where your your previous Stax hits were written with Al Bell and or Steve Cropper, um, this is one that you collaborated on with Booker T. Jones, and I'm curious if, for you, do you approach the songwriting process differently depending on who you're working with, or do you kind of bring the same thing to the table regardless of who you're collaborating with? It'd actually be the the same, but I guess with Booker, you know, it's something about him when he he, he can really put those ballads together, you know, and uh, I was introduced to ballads first before I started going into knock on wood and raise your hands, things like that, so I guess I just kind of really jail with him as far as the ballads. I love you more than words could say. Was was one of them. Then when then when we did never found the girl to love me like you, we did California girl. Just all all of those those songs with Booker. Yeah. And then all of all of a sudden we <laughs> we did we did a up tempo thing, Big Bird, which was like just totally out of the ordinary. That it was so different. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about that one. Um, Otis cut several of your songs, including a cover of Knock on Wood with Carla Thomas and Everybody Makes a Mistake, which had previously been recorded by both Roy Arlington and Mitty Collier. But one of your most classic songs you recorded, even though it wasn't a big hit on the charts, is Big Bird, which I believe was an idea that came to you in the aftermath of Otis's death. Well, that particular song, uh, I'm... I'm the first one to go back to London about eight eight months after the the uh, tour, '67, and and I'm doing uh you know my tour, and I get a call from the BBC that Otis flight had went down and with with the group and and the whole bit, and I tried I only had five shows left and it looked like I would be able to make the funeral for Otis, and there at Heathrow Airport on my way, you know, I caught the flight, the flight sort of took off, <laughs> and then it, it jams on brakes and spin a little bit, and oh wow, I'm scared to death. Yeah. And so we go, we go back to the, uh, back to the terminal, and I'm just sitting in the terminal. But anyway, they fixed it. It was still late. I didn't make, I didn't make the funeral, but I made it back, back to the USA, but as we took off, I, I just come up with this, not really thinking about writing, but I'm just saying, get on up, big bird. <laughs> get on up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and scared, you know. So, okay, during, during the time of 68, Dr. King is, is, is assassinated. And uh, we're getting the news there at, at the uh, stacks. And it's curfew. And I can't really get home, so Booker lives only a block away. And I go to Booker's house that night, and and we just, you know, I didn't go to bed. We didn't go go to bed, as a matter of fact, you know, just 
kind of like stayed up and just decided to write write some some music. Yeah. And uh, I told him that Big Bird. I don't know how why it just came up. It just came up. Yeah. <laughs> I just told him about my experience there there at at the airport, and actually he just he just started playing. He, I told him about the flight. And then he just started playing the piano, and it just felt like what he was playing was was like a flight. Yeah. <laughs> like I was actually on a plane, and I actually had lived that whole song. Wow. We just never did write nothing down. I, I tell you, it's a couple of lines in the song. Everybody still love it, <laughs> but, but it's a couple of lines, lines in the song. You know I'm standing at the station. Station. Ready to go, you know, big old, big old airplane. I'm trusting you, so get on up, Big Bird. It, and it was years later. That's train station, bro. <laughs> 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 right. Not, not the airport, but, 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 but I've heard, I've heard so many groups actually do it their own way that nobody actually, nobody actually sings that part. Right. <laughs> they like. They just they just put some lyric in, you know. Okay, <laughs> long as long as we get the title. <laughs> right, 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 And Booker Booker played guitar on that record, didn't he? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I say everybody has always thought it was Steve playing playing uh, guitar. But you know the funny bit is that with Booker, he, he's such he's an amazing man. I mean, he can play any instrument, although everybody know him for the organ, but he can play anything. Yeah. And the way he plays it, you know, it, it's. It was, it was amazing, although, you know, that was just a song that we did. And so I went maybe another 20, 30 years singing all all around the world, and there would always be somebody out there in the audience saying, Big Bird! <laughs> <laughs> and I would actually hear that and still don't do it, you know. Right. But it, but I kept hearing that. And so one time I go to uh, New York City and and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, is doing Sam and Dave. Uh, and I'm at that one. And, I'm, and I meet a guy from Atlantic Records who tell me, you know, your, your record, Big Bird? And I said, yeah, that's, that's the song I did years ago. He said, it's been number one at a club called the Empire State. Uh, for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> really. <laughs> and, and so he said, I'd like to take you there tonight. I, I'd like to go. And so when I went, he, I stayed in the car for a minute. He told everybody, I'm coming in the club. I don't really know what to expect. Right. I walk off in the club and they, 
they hit the they they played the, the intro of the song right away and it's close to the stage not a very large club and there was a melting pot of of, of people <laughs> i mean it was and i just walked straight on up on the stage and picked the mic up over and over the sky <laughs> <laughs> and, and started sing, singing the song and, and it really came over real good yeah. and then i decided to uh definitely do that song so now i get with steve cropper years later with 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 the blues brothers band dan agroyd and blues brothers and what i wanted to do big bird well he you know like i said he had to learn big bird though. <laughs> right i'll say one more thing that when uh duck dunn and and my and me and steve uh, got together and we went to Japan. This was Donald Duck Dunn last show because he passed that night there in the hotel. But the last song we did was Big Bird, man. And mm. wow. Yeah. I want to tell you. <laughs> and I love that guy so. And the way he played that song, I mean, he really played it. And he wasn't feeling good either. Yeah, we really, really wanted him. You know, let's just go. But no, we wouldn't do it that way. We we would go on and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, uh, you collaborated with Booker T. Jones on "I Never Found a Girl to Love Me Like You Do," which gave you a number two hit on Billboard's R&B chart and a top forty single. And you say in your book that you like that song more than any other song that you ever did. And I'd, I'd love to to hear what it is about that one in particular that that really appeals to you. I don't know. It makes me feel like I'm uptown. <laughs> 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 I mean. It really does. I mean, it's just the way Booker played that, and then he he got the strings from 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 a Memphis State University there to come over to and and play on that on that particular song. And it's just that is my most favorite song. Yeah, <laughs> it never found a girl. I just feel like I made it when I sang that one for some reason. Well, in 1970, you scored a hit with California Girl, another one that you and Booker wrote together. Now, in his book, Booker says you guys wrote both California Girl and Never Found a Girl in California after he moved there. Uh, he says you were the only person from Stax who came out to write with him on the West Coast. From a songwriting perspective, did breaking up the routine or changing the scenery have any impact on the songwriting process? It was still Booker T. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eddie Floyd, and we didn't care where we were. But, yeah. you know, we did do Never Found a Girl, but Booker was leading Stacks at that time anyway, and uh, officially leaving. Yeah. And, and so he's, he's in L.A., and we got the hit Never Found a Girl. And now, uh, well, I need to fly out to L.A. and and see see Booker and and write write from there. That's all I thought about was 
because I've always like went to different places and uh, arriving in in LA with with Booker, he meets me at the airport, him and his wife, and uh, we're actually riding along, and I'm seeing a a a, a, a mail truck, and it has a girl on it with, with you know with the bathing suit. Right. Yeah, and they're saying a California girl. <laughs> so that's in my mind. So Book and I, we're going to go to the hotel. I check in. His wife go home and he stays. And we up and I'm on the 12th floor out on the balcony looking looking out at L.A. the whole bit. And Book has got his little guitar and we got a little cassette player. And... And sitting down trying to like like think of think of something right away I'm thinking of that title, California Girl. Yeah. I saw that. And uh I did read a little of book of the book. He didn't he didn't he didn't really say how all of that was taking place, but he started he you know, he just started playing a little rhythm because he could always just play something, just play a little rhythm. And uh I uh just saying, California girl, you're living in a different world. Well, it was like let the sun shine in right here where my love began. I'm seeing the sun shining out, you know, while we're up on the balcony. And yeah, that's the way. I, that's the way I write anyway. And and again, I'll sing you a melody and sing you almost all the lyrics. Just from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I never write, never written anything down, really. Huh. I see it later after 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 you said it was a song. You <laughs> 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 found maybe maybe like see the lyrics. It just stay in my head that way. Wow. And uh, so I we got the track. I leave and I go back to 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 Memphis and start working at. And Book is ready to uh, do the vocal, fly back out, and we get in the studio. And he's playing the rhythm part of it. And I don't know, all of a sudden, I just, he's, he's, back, he's out in, in the studio, him and his wife looking at me and the engineer. It's just four of us. And he started playing the song, and I just started entertaining him, you know. Right. And I and I started thinking about when I was up on that balcony, sitting in the balcony, and the whole, looking out over L.A. and the whole bit. Well, I got the idea from Superman, <laughs> the Daily Planet. Right. <laughs> so so I, so I just started talking on the beginning as I stand here this evening, looking out over the metropolis. That's the Daily Planet. Right. I can't help but think about the young lady that I met here. So I wrote a song, and I called it My California Girl. Yeah. And booking them is out, out there giving thumbs up, thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> different world. 
It's always been my experience to sing my songs only one time. Huh, really? Every song I've done, I've only done it once. Wow. <laughs> so, so I'm singing that, and it's going all the way down on the end, and the music is going so good, and, and the background singing is really hitting that, you know, really hitting that thing. And well, here I come back again to book in and his word. In his, I'm not ashamed tonight to send words to the young lady that I met in the metropolis of Los Angeles, California. <laughs> and and end it the song. Well, that was that was a good song for me too, R and B wise. You know, here in the states. Yeah. Well, this uh, isn't a songwriting question, but I think some of our listeners might be surprised to learn that you had a hand in the early career of the southern rock band Leonard Skinner. What can you tell us about that? Oh yeah. Well, during during the time, you know, Otis was from Macon. And uh, the Walden boys, they were instrumental in us going to London, you know, doing that show. They were the booking agency, the whole bit. And uh, Phil Walden and Otis were sort of like together. And Alan Walden and I became friends. And we decided to uh, open up a production company called Hustlers there. And... A lot of the uh, southern rock bands would, you know, knew knew them, and and uh, once we formed the company, then here comes this group. I don't know them, but Alan did, you know. Right. And uh, they were Leonard Skinner doing it, and uh, there is a photo of me there in my office at at Hustlers. Double house, you know, it had office on the studio in the bottom office, right. house upstairs, and uh, took a photo of Alan, and he's standing in, the, in, in with the boys, and that was, the, that was the beginning of Leonard Skinner. There are many people that really don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I never, you know, well, I know it, but I mean, they didn't go around advertising it, but we actually went to uh, uh, Muscle Shows, actually, and 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 uh, tried to tried to set set up the recording session for him. And I never saw any of that. But then then um, back down in in Macon, and uh, Capricorn Records was just uh, a little furniture, yeah, furniture store uh-huh. downtown that they were gonna name. Capricorn Records, and uh, wow, I got a chance to be the first one to record in it. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, they had, they had just set that up, and I actually did, you know, four songs with with Greg Armand. Wow. <laughs> it, well, and the boys, too. That's what I'm saying. I've, I've just been lucky lucky to just be where I be. Because <laughs> I'm always doing something somewhere, and that was part of the uh, California Girl album. So four songs that we wasn't finished with it, and then I actually went on up to Detroit and, and actually recorded a, a couple of, of of the cuts in that album too. So it's 
So it went from L.A. to Macon to all the way all the way up to Detroit, and 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 then uh, you know, like I say, the Allman Brothers. And then now I don't see Leonard Skinner and them anymore. And then then I hear hear the bad news. You know, the their their flight had went down. Wow. You know, I understand that you were one of the last men standing at Stax. Uh, as times changed and as Stax went through various business struggles, you hung in there. Why did you decide to stay when so many other of your compatriots had left? Al Bell, <laughs> the <laughs> one that I went there with. Yeah. I didn't. I couldn't see that. that he was still there, so I stayed too. Yeah, and yeah. That was the reason. Many people asked me that question too. Uh, I didn't really think think about. Well, it was just because of Al. That's that's exactly what was what was happening with me. He was still there. And, yeah. And I stayed there, actually, until I remember calling Stacks that that day, and and was talking with one of the secretaries, and she said, "I'm sorry, but." I got to go because the RRS is closing the doors as we speak. Hmm. And then I automatically jumped in the car and and went down the stacks, you know. But there were quite a few people outside, you know, actually seeing this take place. Wow. End of an era. Yep. End of an era. The music's still here, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's still here. Well, you turned 83 this year, and you've written and sung a lot of songs over the decades. Are you still actively writing songs these days? Absolutely. Never never stop. No, really. I mean, I've always... I go to Memphis all the time and play with a, a few of the musicians, and they be from Stax. Uh, never, and uh, also I go to Atlanta. And next week, I'm actually going up to Nashville and, and get with a good old buddy, uh, Mike Stewart up there from Atlanta. And uh, we're actually going to do one more. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do, do one more. And I'm actually going to film this, like calling it starting from scratch for the young kids just to see how we did songs back in those days yeah that's really cool yeah well and you've got your your uh book just out knock 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 on wood uh that you wrote with tony fletcher and uh great stories in there we've just barely scratched the surface today talking about all the the great history and the the great stuff you write about in your book so i encourage our listeners to to definitely check that out and um eddie i just want to thank you for spending some time with us today and talking about your your songwriting and and your amazing career this has been great uh, thanks so much i really enjoyed it Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com 
and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.